Why most Latter-day Saints are overpaying their tithing by thousands of dollars. In 1837-1838, Joseph Smith relocated to Far West. Unlike the Kirtland Temple where money was borrowed to build it, this time around, as Bishop Newell K. Whitney emphasized, the building of the kingdom was to be done by the tithing of the people. And soon after, Joseph Smith received section 119 of the Doctrine and Covenants, which lays out the law of tithing. That law has continued until this present day. Most Latter-day Saints believe that tithing is to be paid as 10% of the gross of one's income or earnings. And you'll hear from time to time discussion among membership that maybe it could be net. But today, we are going to explore the historical context of tithing and give you a third option which makes a whole lot more sense within that history. The first document that you see on the screen is a church handbook of instruction. This would have been back in the late 90s, early 2000s. In almost every handbook that had come out in those decades of the 80s, 90s, 2000s, said the same thing about the definition of tithing. In this handbook, the Church Handbook of Instructions, Book 1, for Stake Presidencies and Bishoprics, you'll see section here 15. And if you look at page 134, which is the page to the far right, you'll see in the first column, at the very bottom, tithing, definition of tithing. I've also put that definition in the top left corner in larger print so that you can see what it says more clearly. It says, definition of tithing. The first presidency has written, the simplest statement we know of is the statement of the Lord himself, namely that the members of the church should pay one-tenth of all their interest annually, which is understood to mean income. No one is justified in making any other statement than this. And this was in a First Presidency letter, which we'll speak about later, given on the 19th of March, 1970. And they also refer you to Doctrine and Covenants, section 119, verse 4. It was that DNC 119 that we just spoke about, which was the revelation given to the prophet Joseph Smith. In the Millennial Star, 1847, Orson Hyde is the editor, and in this edition, there was a long article on tithing. The first image you see here is the front cover of that Millennial Star, and the page just to the right of it is the section on tithing. As it goes to the next image, you'll see that we have marked in red the section that we will be talking about. It should be noted here that we're going to go through a bunch of historical documents tonight. Every one of these documents has been sourced in our footnotes, and you will see a link to that in this YouTube video. We would encourage you to seek out every source that we have included and to be familiar with it and feel free to understand the context before and after the sections that we are talking about. Back to the image, you'll see the section that is marked in red. The following image is that section zoomed in. It starts off by saying the celestial law requires one-tenth part of all man's substance which he possesses at the time he comes into the church. 
and, and here's the underlined part, one-tenth part of his annual increase ever after. If it requires all a man can earn to support himself and family, he is not tithed at all. The celestial law does not take the mother's and children's bread, neither aught else which they really need for their comfort. The poor that have not this world's goods to spare, but serve and honor God according to the best of their abilities in every other way, shall have a celestial crown in the eternal kingdom of our Father. This edition of the Millennial Star seems to be supporting an idea that tithing was paid on one surplus, that one went out and worked and toiled to take care and provide for their family, to make sure that all the basic needs were met. And then whatever money was left over, that money was tithed at 10% of that. Notice again that if it takes all a man can earn to support himself and family, he is not tithed at all. So for example, if a person is out working and all the money he earns is the amount needed to pay for food and shelter and clothing and the basic necessities of life, then he's not tithed at all. The celestial law, as it says here, does not take the mother and children's bread, neither aught else which they really need for their comfort. The poor have not this world's goods to spare, but serve and honor God according to the best of their abilities in every other way, shall have a celestial crown in the eternal kingdom of our Father. In other words, there's no penalty for only making the amount of income that is required to provide for one's basic needs. This is the celestial law. Next, we turn to the Doctrine and Covenants, specifically that section 119 we mentioned in the beginning. As the heading says, this was a revelation given through Joseph Smith the prophet at Far West, Missouri, July 8th, 1838, in answer to his supplication of how he was going to build up the city of God, the kingdom of God in Far West. Notice here section 119, verse 1, quote, Verily, thus saith the Lord, I require all their surplus property to be put in the hands of the bishop of my church in Zion. So here it is again, a note that the Lord himself is using the term surplus. And we recognized in the last slide that when a member joined the church, they would give the church all of their surplus property, and then from that point forward, would pay 10% of their surplus income as tithing. The next document we are going to explore is the Encyclopedia of Mormonism, a four-volume set. While this four-volume set is not part of the official publications of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, it sought to portray Mormonism fairly and had several LDS scholars on its production team, including Daniel Ludlow as its editor-in-chief and other scholars such as Richard Bushman, Truman Madsen, Larry Porter, who was a general authority, John Welch, and others. The Encyclopedia of Mormonism four-volume set attempted to portray Mormonism's theology and the definition of its words within its religion and faith accurately 
in a way that Latter-day Saints would recognize and have agreement on. In the section on tithing, it says that the Lord said members should pay, quote, one-tenth of all their interest, and then in brackets, increase annually, and this shall be a standing law unto them forever, unquote. It also noted the 1970 letter mentioned earlier. It says, a 1970 letter from the First Presidency stated that notwithstanding the fact that members should pay one-tenth of their income, quote, every member of the church is entitled to make his own decision as to what he thinks he owes the Lord and to make payment accordingly, unquote. The letter's dated March 19, 1970. It then follows up by saying, hence, the exact amount paid is not as important as that each member feels that he or she has paid an honest tenth. The important things to note at this point is that Doctrine and Covenants 119 notes that it is one-tenth of the interest or increase annually. One-tenth of the interest or increase annually. And this is being repeated in multiple places. It also is stating in multiple places a reference to this 1970 First Presidency letter, which says that every member of the church is entitled to make his own decision as to what he thinks he owes the Lord and to make payment accordingly. In the next document, we're going to look at Joseph Smith's translation of Genesis 14. In Genesis 14, verse 39, it says, quote, Wherefore, Abram paid unto him tithes of all that he had, of all the riches which he possessed, which God had given him more than that which he had need. Notice here that Abraham paid Melchizedek tithes of all that he had, of all the riches which he possessed, which God had given him more than that which he had need. So Abraham paid tithing on the riches that he possessed above and beyond the money that was needed, the riches that were needed to provide for his needs. Again, which God had given him more than that which he had need. It seems here to indicate once again that the process of paying tithing is being done on paying on surplus. Now, Abraham was extremely wealthy, hence his surplus was significant. But for others, such as the reference in that Millennial Star 1847 image that we showed you, that when a family does all that they can to provide for their needs and there's nothing left over, then nothing is paid. The next thing we're going to turn to is General Conference. This will be the Saturday, October 7th session in 1899. The President of the Church, Prophet, Seer, and Revelator, President Lorenzo Snow, stands up at the October 7th Saturday session at 10 a.m. to speak to the saints in St. George about tithing. Older members who are listening to this audio and video presentation will likely remember an old video where Lorenzo Snow is depicted as speaking to the saints on tithing. Here is the full quote he gave in that conference pertaining to what we're talking about in this presentation. God bless the Latter-day Saints. I want to have this principle so fixed upon our hearts that we shall never forget it. As I have said more than once, I know that the Lord will forgive the Latter-day Saints for their past negligence in paying tithing. 
if they will now repent and pay a conscientious tithing from this time on, but it would be woeful to think of the results if the Latter-day Saints had failed to listen to the voice of the servants of the Lord. It is God's truth that the time has now come when he will not look favorably upon our negligence of this principle. And here's the line that's underlined. I plead with you in the name of the Lord, and I pray that every man, woman, and child who has means shall pay one-tenth of their income as tithing. Notice here that he leaves space for those who don't have means to not pay. Every man, woman, and child who has means shall pay one-tenth of their income as tithing. We now turn to that first presidency letter, March 19, 1970. I put again in the bottom right-hand corner of this slide that handbook of instruction quote where they were defining tithing. And I just want to note there that they referenced the first presidency letter, March 19, 1970, which we have shown the text here on this slide. It also should be noted that you can read a little bit about this letter by going to the 1974 Enzyme in April. And there was a section titled, I Have a Question. And one of the questions in that section is what figure we base our tithing on. In that article, this letter is referenced with the same text I'm about to read to you. The first presidency letter, March 19, 1970, said, quote, The simplest statement we know of is the statement of the Lord himself, namely, that the members of the church should pay one-tenth of all their interest annually, which is understood to mean income. No one is justified in making any other statement than this. We feel that every member of the church is entitled to make his own decision as to what he thinks he owes the Lord and to make payment accordingly." Unquote. It's signed by Joseph Fielding Smith, President, Prophet, Seer, and Revelator, as well as his counselors, Harold B. Lee and N. Eldon Tanner. Again, the letter itself notes D&C 119, that the members should pay one-tenth of all their interest annually. And they then come in above and beyond section 119 and note that they understand it to mean income and that no one is justified in making any other statement than this. And then they re-emphasize that it's up to every individual to decide in their own mind and heart what is an honest tithing and to pay it accordingly. The next reference we're going to look at is a book or pamphlet written by James E. Talmadge titled The Lord's Tenth. James E. Talmadge was on the Council of the Twelve Apostles, also a prophet, seer, and revelator, a member of the Quorum of the Twelve in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. One of the sections in this publication was titled The Tithe as a Rental. The underlined section on your screen says, quote, However, your life will not be one of uniform increase in substance and possessions. You will have your losses as well as your gains. You will have your periods of trouble as well as your times of peace. Some years will be years of plenty unto you, and others will be years of scarcity. 
And now, instead of doing as mortal landlords do, require you to contract with them to pay in advance whatever your fortunes or your prospects may be, you shall pay me not in advance, but when you have received, and you shall pay me in accordance with what you receive. If it so be that in one year your income is abundant, then you can afford to pay me a little more. And if it so be in the next year is one of distress, and your income is not what it was, then you shall pay me less. And should it be that you are reduced to the utmost penury, that you have nothing coming in, you will pay me nothing. The next document we turn to is the Melchizedek Priesthood Curriculum in 1947. It was written by Joseph Fielding Smith, who served as the church historian starting in 1921 and eventually became the president, prophet, seer, and revelator of the church. The manual was titled Church History and Modern Revelation, Joseph Fielding Smith. In that manual, it said, quote, In more recent times, the church has not called upon members to give all their surplus property to the church, but it has been the requirement, according to the covenant, that they pay the tenth. Joseph Fielding Smith, Church History and Modern Revelation, Salt Lake City, Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, 1946 to 1949. Next, let's look at the New Testament. Hebrews chapter 7, verses 1 through 4. Starting in verse 1, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham, returning from the slaughter of the kings, and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave the tenth part of all, first being by interpretation king of righteousness, and after that also king of Salem, which is king of peace, without father, without mother, without descent, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like unto the Son of God, abideth a priest continually. And then here in verse 4, quote, Now consider how great this man was, unto whom even the patriarch Abram gave the tenth of the spoils. Unquote. Abraham paid a tenth of the spoils that he had, which by definition are the goods, advantages, or profits obtained normally by winning a war or being in a particular position or situation, hence the spoils of victory. This is essentially the same storyline that Joseph Smith is revising in the Joseph Smith translation of Genesis 14. If you remember there, Joseph Smith takes that verse and alters it again to, Wherefore Abram paid unto him tithes of all that he had, of all the riches which he possessed, which God had given him more than that which he had need. So the things that God had given him above his needs was that which he paid tithing. And those were the words that Joseph Smith decided to revise from Hebrews chapter 7 into the Joseph Smith translation of Genesis 14. The next document we're going to look at is also the Doctrine and Covenants. This time, section 42. Verse 33, And again, if there shall be properties in the hands of the church, or any individuals of it, more than is necessary for their support after this first consecration, which is a residue to be consecrated unto the bishop, it shall be kept to administer to those who have not, from time to time, 
that every man who has need may be amply supplied and receive according to his wants. Again, notice these times that are being mentioned of surplus or interest or more than is necessary or above that which he had need. Notice the vernacular and rhetoric that's being used by the Lord when he speaks of tithing and when his servants, these prophets, seers, and revelators, and when they're expounding on this topic. The next document we're going to look at is the Elder's Journal. In it is contained a letter from Heber C. Kimball to his wife, Violet, and subsequently reprinted in the Elder's Journal, October 1837, pages 4 through 7. He tells the story regarding his wife. We've outlined that in red, and in the next slide, we'll zoom in so that we can read it. He says, we have to live quite short, but the brethren are very kind to us. They are willing to divide with us the last they have. They are quite ignorant. Many of them cannot read a word, and it needs great care to teach them the gospel so that they can understand. Again, this is a letter from Heber C. Kimball to his wife while he is on one of his missions for the church. Here's the important line, and it's underlined in red on your screen. He is, and I should say here, he is noting the non-Mormons in the area, specifically the religious folks, and how their religion operates. And he's noting the contrast between their religious system and the one that he came to preach the gospel of. Here, underlined by in red, Heber C. Kimball stated to his wife, quote, the people here are bound down under priestcraft in a manner I never saw before. They have to pay tithes to the priest of every tenth they raise so that they cannot lay up one cent. They are in the same situation the children of Israel were in Egypt. They have their taskmasters over them to bind them down. Notice that Hebrew C. Kimball is noting that the religious folks in the area that he is preaching, he considers them to be bound down under priestcraft in a manner that he's never seen before. They have to pay tithes to the priest of every tenth they raise so that they cannot lay up one cent. They are in the same situation the children of Israel were in Egypt. He's noting that they pay 10% of all the income they bring in, not the surplus. And hence, they don't have the ability to pay for their basic needs first and instead are tasked with paying the priest. And he sees this as being priestcraft and he has never seen this practice before. The next document we turn to is a discourse by Elder Franklin D. Richards delivered at Logan, Utah on Saturday afternoon November 6th, 1882, he speaks about tithes and offerings, and here's what he says, quote, I require all their surplus property to be put in the hands of the bishop, unquote. Let us consider for a moment this word surplus. Now, he just read section 119 of the DNC, and now he's commenting on it. So he quotes DNC 119 and says, quote, I require all the surplus property to be put into the hands of the bishop, unquote. 
Then Franklin D. Richards expounds on that. He says, Let us consider for a moment this word surplus. What does it mean when applied to a man and his property? Surplus cannot mean that which is indispensably necessary for any given purpose, but what remains after supplying what is needed for that purpose. Is not the first and most necessary use of man's property that he feed, clothe, and provide a home for himself and family? Was not surplus property that which was over and above a comfortable and necessary substance? In the light of what had transpired and of subsequent events, what else could it mean? Can we take any other view of it when we consider the circumstances under which it was given in Far West in July 1838? Quote, I have been unable in studying this subject to find any other definition of the term surplus as used in this revelation than the one I have just given. I find that it was so understood and recorded by the bishops and people in those days, as well as by the prophet Joseph Smith himself, who was unquestionably the ablest and most exponent of this revelation. So that's the end of Franklin D. Richards expounding. And I want to jump in here and just note, this seems to say it so plainly and directly. Surplus cannot mean that which is indispensably necessary for any given purpose. It's surplus. It's extra. It's what's left over after the needs are taken care of. And he says as much. He says, but what remains after supplying what is needed for that purpose? Is not the first and most necessary use of a man's property that he feed and clothe and provide a home for himself and family? Was not surplus property that which was over and above a comfortable and necessary substance? Franklin D. Richards couldn't be more clear. He indicates strongly that his understanding of the early church theology around tithing and his own is that tithing is 10% of one's surplus, not 10% of one's gross. And he notes that this was the practice in the early church, the early practice by the bishops in those days, and the early practice and understanding of the prophet Joseph Smith himself, who was in the best position to notify us of what was the mind and will and voice of the Lord. The next document we turn to is a church publication titled Gospel Ideals, Selections from the Discourses of David O. McKay. In there, in the section on tithing, it says this, quote, The law of tithing, as now understood and practiced by the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, was given by revelation to the prophet Joseph Smith in response to a prayer in which the prophet sought the Lord to know, quote, how much he required of the properties of the people for a tithing. The Lord answered, saying, The beginning of tithing consisted first of all the surplus property, and named the specific purposes for which this surplus property should be used. After that, tithing consists of one-tenth of all the interest annually, and this, he continued, shall be a standing law unto them, forever. Your interest annually. 
again we hear that term. Here is where we get into the mind of early church leaders and understand what is meant by this idea of interest. In the Joseph Smith Papers Project, a document has been located. It's Bishop Edward Partridge in a letter to Newell K. Whitney, dated July 24, 1838. It is in Connection. It is connected to another document, which is the Reynolds Cahoon letter to Newell K. Whitney, July 24, 1838. This document is held by the Church History Library, Salt Lake City, viewable in publication of the Joseph Smith Papers, Documents, Volume 6, February 1838 to August 1839. As you're looking on the screen, you'll see a depiction of Uh, Bishop Edward Partridge on the top right, just to the left of him is the document that we're talking about. There is a spot on the right side, the right page, about the middle, which we have transferred over to the left of that and underlined in red. I'm going to simply read the underlined part. Bishop Edward Partridge is expounding on what he understands tithing to be, and he says, If a man is worth $1,000, the interest on that would be $60, and one-tenth of the interest will, of course, be $6. And I want to note here that church historian Stephen Harper, an employee of the church history department and one of the main contributors to the Joseph Smith Papers Project, noted, quote, Bishop Partridge understood one-tenth of all their interest annually to mean 10% of what the saints would earn in interest if they invested their net worth for a year. Stephen Harper, historian with the Church History Department, and this is in an article found on the church's website, The Tithing of My People, DNC 119 and 120. And so here you have Bishop Edward Partridge being asked about how he understands the law of tithing. He's responding that they are to pay annually one-tenth of all their interest. That is, if a man is worth $1,000, the interest on that would be $60, and one-tenth of the interest will, of course, be $6. Bishop Edward Partridge couldn't be more clear about his understanding of tithing. If a person earned $1,000 for the year and it was able to be invested, which of course wouldn't be the money that you earned in total because out of that $1,000 you have to pay for your housing and your food and your clothes. Instead, whatever you had left over, you would invest it and whatever you earned in interest, again, assuming an average of 6%, would be paid in tithing. While this isn't exactly surplus, it certainly is something much more comparable to surplus and is certainly very far distant from being interpreted as anything near paying 10% of your gross income. This helps to shed light on the way that the church and especially early leaders and the Lord use the word interest. The next section we're going to look to is another general conference. This is April 1964, and here 
we are looking at Howard W. Hunter's talk. He spoke on the law of tithing, and here's what he had to say. In the image is the cover for the conference report of that year, and also in the top half of this image is his entire talk that day. The section marked off in red is the pertinent section, and here is the quote that we want to emphasize for this presentation found in that section. Quote, The law is simply stated as one-tenth of all their interest. Interest means profit, compensation, increase. It is the wage of one employed, the profit from the operation of a business, the increase of one who grows or produces, or the income to a person from any other source. The Lord said it is a standing law forever, as it has been in the past. Howard W. Hunter. The trouble here is that Howard W. Hunter is giving out contradictory ways in which tithing is to be figured. So, for example, if it is the profit from the operation of a business, the business has cost to it. And a business will bring in, let's say, a half million dollars. And let's say its cost are $400,000. What it has left over, or its profit, is $100,000. This is after payroll's been met. This is after taxes have been paid. This is after all the cost of doing business. A member of the church who's paying tithing on their business would then pay 10% of their profit, the leftover $100,000. But he doesn't apply it that way to individuals. In other words, in our families, for instance, Let's say a family makes $100,000 and their cost of doing business, aka putting food on the table for the children, paying for health insurance, paying for the groceries, getting the clothes, taking care of whatever other main needs and necessities of life that are incurred, getting those paid first, and then what is left over would be the profit, just like he intimates about a business. But in this instance, he changes the wording to compensation or income. I'm going to leave it up to you to figure out how you reconcile all of these documents. But it seems pretty clear that the historical record seems to be pointing towards surplus or one-tenth of one's interest. And just like the cost of doing business in a business, that families also have a cost of doing business. And that paying on what is left over after the main necessities of life are taken care of seems to be deeply justified by the historical documents that we've covered today. The next one we're going to speak about is the April 1907 77th Annual Conference of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. In the April 1907 conference, Joseph F. Smith, 6th President of the Church, prophet, seer, and revelator, stated this, quote, Furthermore, I want to say to you, we may not be able to reach it right away, but we expect to see the day when we will not have to ask you for one dollar of donation for any purpose except that which you volunteer to give of your own accord, because we will have tithes sufficient in the storehouse of the Lord to pay everything that is needful for the advancement of the kingdom of God. I want to live to see that day, if the Lord will spare my life, 
It does not make any difference, though, so far as that is concerned, whether I live or not. That is the true policy, the true purpose of the Lord in the management of the affairs of his church. Joseph F. Smith, April 1907, General Conference. I want to note here that Joseph F. Smith says he is aware that a day will come when the church will have enough tithes in the storehouse sufficient to take care of everything that is needful for the advancement of the kingdom. He hopes to see that day, but doesn't know if he will or not. Recently, at a National Press Club live feed, Elder David Bednar, one of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, one of the Twelve, a prophet, seer, and revelator, noted that this day seemingly has come. Um, given the fin- significant financial strain that tithing is for those in war or in abject poverty, is there any discussion within the church about not requiring that for people in those situations, or at least uh, at least tithing only what is left after paying for housing, food, and other necessities? President Hinckley stood at this pulpit in 2000, made reference to the law of tithing. I remember watching him teach in impoverished areas of the country and promising the people the pathway out of poverty is keeping the commandments of God, including tithing. The church doesn't need their money, but those people need the blessings that come from obeying God's commandments. Did you hear Apostle Elder David A. Bednar there? Let me read Joseph F. Smith, sixth president of the church again. Quote, We expect to see the day when we will not have to ask you for one dollar of donation for any purpose except that which you volunteer to give of your own accord because we will have tithes sufficient in the storehouse of the Lord to pay everything that is needful for the advancement of the kingdom of God. And once again, here is what Elder Bednar said. The church doesn't need their money, but those people need the blessings that come from obeying God's commandments. On one hand, Elder Bednar is acknowledging that the church no longer needs the individual member's money. But then he contradicts Joseph F. Smith, who said, When we as a church don't need your money anymore, the Lord will not require you to pay tithing. And Elder Bednar says, seems to be saying that in spite of the fact that the church doesn't need your money, we're going to require you to pay tithing anyway because it's a blessing for you. And you're going to have to wrestle a little bit with what these two prophets are saying and if there's a contradiction there. It seems as though the earlier prophet said there was a day that would come when the church would have enough money that the tithing being required at the members' hands would not be necessary. And in light of how much money the church has, which is over a hundred billion dollars, and I don't think most people can even fathom what a hundred billion dollars is, but with a hundred billion dollars in reserve, at least, and most likely that's conservative estimates, Most likely, the church now has upwards of around $150 billion to $200 billion. 
And so as we wrap up this presentation, I simply note to you that as I looked around for the historical context of tithing, I looked all over for evidence that supported paying tithing on 10% of gross, 10% of net, and 10% of surplus. I found essentially nothing strongly in favor of net or gross, and almost all of the historical context, most of which you saw today, seems to support something along the lines of paying tithing on 10% of your surplus. And since it's your decision to make, and that the Lord and his leaders aren't going to say any more than that official statement that came out of the 1970 letter, each of you are free to make a decision based on what you think tithing should be, what it's defined as, and make that payment accordingly. But I think after reviewing the historical context, the one that is most supported by the history, by the quotes, by our leaders, by the statements and the context of the historical documents is 10% of your interest or surplus. And hence, each one of you have an opportunity here to put thousands of dollars in your pocket rather than putting thousands of dollars into church coffers that aren't being used, simply are accruing investment value from the stock market and are sitting there at 150 to 200 billion dollars. Maybe the day has come where the church no longer needs your tithing money. Again, all sources for this episode can be found at the link on the screen. Also, if you go down into the notes of the YouTube video below the video, you'll see that there are resources shared there as well. You can email us at mormondiscussionspodcast at gmail.com. This exploration of tithing within Mormonism was brought to you by Mormon Discussion Incorporated. We specialize in documenting the historical issues within Mormonism and helping members who have questions and doubts about their faith. You can view and listen to our other work on our YouTube channel, Mormon Discussion Incorporated, just the INC. So www.youtube.com backslash C backslash Mormon Discussions with an S on the end, INC. You can also visit us at Mormon Discussions with an S on the end, dot org. MormonDiscussions.org. Also, how you can help us reach more people. If you or a loved one considered today's material and have adjusted how you pay tithing, saving you or your loved one thousands of dollars, you can thank us by doing one of the following. Number one, share this episode with LDS friends and family to help them save money. Number two, you can subscribe to this channel and check out our other historical explorations of Mormonism. Number three, visit mormondiscussions.org, click the donate button, and tell us thanks by sending us a one-time or recurring donation to help fund our research and presentations. Hopefully, we've saved you a lot of money, helped you to better understand the law of tithing, and have benefited you greatly with this material.